Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey is an author, speaker, advisor. He consults startup companies as well as established high-tech companies such as Salesforce, Microsoft, and Autodesk. Jeffrey is the author of the groundbreaking book, Crossing the Chasm, which features the challenges startup companies face when transitioning from early adoption to the mainstream customer. Jeffrey gives about 50 to 80 speeches a year, and he's considered one of the pioneers of launching disruptive innovations. So, uh, Jeffrey, thanks for coming on the show. Well, it's my pleasure, Tats. Glad to be here. Yeah, so your book, Crossing the Chasm, is kind of the gold standard for new product introduction and, and launch. For those that aren't familiar with it, can you sort of talk a little bit about what the chasm is? Sure. So this has to do particularly with products that are disruptive, either disruptive technology or a new business model or new operating model. And so the challenge is to get the customers to adopt something that they're not used to. And there was a model for that called the technology adoption lifecycle. And in that lifecycle, we identified four separate points where the type of people who are adopting the stage of the lifecycle requires an entrepreneurial company to change the way it goes to market. And so I thought what I might do is just maybe tell you the four places in the life cycle and then how each one sort of plays out. So the first, the, in the early part of the life cycle, the, the two people that tend to lean in to a new idea are, we call them the technology enthusiasts and the visionaries. The technology enthusiasts just like the technology. They're just, it's like, it's really cool. And the visionaries are thinking, there's got to be a better way. But both of those groups tend to believe what you believe if you're the entrepreneur. They're, more, they're kind of like you, <laughs> and they want to help. They want to, they want to get involved. So, and, and your product's still pretty new, and there isn't an ecosystem. There's no standards yet. So the model for that time is kind of like a project model. You, you work with your customers to sort of build out the first few reference accounts, and it's not a standard product. We're all working together. It's very exciting. And you talk a lot about the vision and the wonderful things we can do. And it's always about the, the upside, all the goodness that's going to come out of this. That lasts as long as that early market cohort is there. But after you get a few references or whatever, both your investors and your employees and everybody are saying, well, but there's got to be a bigger market than this. And that means you've got to get into what we call the mainstream market. And the mainstream market is inherently skeptical about anything new. And that's what creates this thing called the chasm, because the, the way the mainstream market makes decisions is they'll do it when they see other people doing it. But until they see other people doing it, they'd like to wait and see. So the chasm is kind of the wait and see problem. And the challenge the entrepreneur is, well, how do I break it? If everybody's waiting for everybody else, how do we get started? And so what we realized, and this is the second of the four sort of inflection points, was you have to go after, these people are very pragmatic. So they're going to wait normally, but if they're in pain, then they may be more encouraged to say, well, 
The problem is I'm in pain. I'm a pragmatist in pain, and my current solutions aren't solving it for it. So now I have a more willing audience. But then what you have to do as an entrepreneur is take this incredible invention you have and absolutely direct it exclusively at that very specific pain point for that very specific set of customers. And what you're trying to do is light the fire on the other side of the chasm. So you don't want to spread, you want to spread widely. You want to actually pick one point of attack, one problem in one niche market with one set of customers, because you want to get a reference cycle going. If you get one, two, three, four customers on the same use case, now all of a sudden the market goes, oh, I don't know if these people are for real anyplace else, but this is what they do. And, and you have a much bigger ambition, of course. You're an entrepreneur. You want to conquer the world. <laughs> but you got to start you got to start by starting the fire somewhere. And so the idea behind that is, that second one is you focus on one use case, very painful problem for a marginalized set of customers, typically not a big market. We say that segment should be big enough to matter, meaning if you're at a million dollars worth of revenue, it should be able to get you to 10, but not 100 but big enough to matter, but small enough to lead so that at two or $3 million in that market, you're kind of a big deal, right? <laughs> that's, the, that's the idea. And that lets partners, by the way, begin to start forming around your product because they say, well, they're the leader in this one use case. I'm a little company. Maybe I can make my living in this use case. And so that's, that's the idea. And so the, that, that we call that the, the beachhead market on the other side of the castle. And then we say, well, how do you expand from there? And we realized, well, you could go into adjacent use cases with, with similar use cases, similar customers, and you could kind of build out sort of gradually, kind of the way in a primary election, you, well, I'm going to try to win the New Hampshire primary. Maybe I'm going to try to win the Iowa caucuses, although this year has been sort of very strange. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, and, and so we called that the bowling alley, where you were going from niche to niche, uh, kind of going. But it's still the same thing. Pick a tough problem, solve the problem. That's the other commitment. You have to commit to solve the entirety of that problem, working with partners. But what you can't do is say, well, I'll just supply my part and the customer will take care of the rest. That won't happen in that second stage. It will happen, however, in the third stage. So the third stage we call the tornado. The tornado is the opposite of the chasm. So the chasm is like, well, nobody's doing it. I'm not doing it. The tornado is, well, oh, everybody's doing it. I have to do it. Okay. <laughs> So all of a sudden, you're like Zoom. Like right now, we're, we're talking to each other over Zoom. Okay, like Zoom is in the biggest tornado you've ever seen in your life. Okay, everybody's using Zoom. Okay? So now, Zoom doesn't have to like specialize in the problem. It just has to ship. It just has to stay up. And partners will, will lean in and make the rest. So at that point, your job is just deliver your part of the solution at scale, reliably, effectively, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when all the big reputations in, in tech are made. And then the fourth and final stage, which in the prior century, after the tornado, people kind of got bored or they just, they had customers locked in. So they sort of took them for granted and frankly, kind of abused them. <laughs> but this century, because of software as a service, because of cloud computing, because of all these things and the switching costs, now we're realizing that churn or attrition or retention or these ideas are really important. And that's the fourth stage in the life cycle, which is how do you keep a customer recurring and stay, and stay involved? And that's not about getting a new customer so much as maintaining the relationship as other new entrants come in with very bright, shiny objects. And you have to say, well, how do I keep them? So those are the four stages. Anyway, it's quite a long-winded, but that's the deal. 
No, it's it's important. Now let's go back to the uh, early adopters. Now, how do you how do you get more of those? Because without those, you you just don't get anywhere. That's right. Well, in the early adopter worlds, so you have a typically in the tech world at least, you have a disruptive innovation. And so what you do is you give talks about your innovation. And typically those talks are attended more by technology enthusiasts than visionaries. But the technology enthusiasts get interested in your technology. Now, visionaries are people who can move budgets. They're typically executive people who can make big bets. Technology enthusiasts are more like the people that like to implement and work in the actual projects. So you typically educate the technology enthusiasts, webinars, and industry standards group in the old days. I'm not quite sure. If you went to a JIRA, if you were doing software thing, you'd go to an Atlassian JIRA uh, community group, whatever it would be. And you talk about what you're doing. And what you're trying to do is get a meeting with a visionary. And then you're, you, the, your CEO, if that may be you or maybe somebody else, meets with the visionary to say, well, this is what we're doing. And this is the, the sort of the order of magnitude improvement we're making in this factor. And this is the kind of projects we think we can enable. What do you think? And if you, when you get that first one, and it, there's no way, to, they don't like put up a sign. So you just have to get, you have to just keep fishing until somebody strikes your lure, right? Mm-hmm. But after you get the first project, visionaries normally like to brag about what they've done. <laughs> and so you want to then use that first project as a kind of like a, a lighthouse reference account. Yeah. And by the way, the press loves to write about visionaries. And so you want to get that first story out there. And then you have to use that story to get maybe the next couple of visionaries. But you don't want to stay with the visionaries for more than a year or two, because if you're going to scale your company, you're going to have to cross the chasm. Yeah. So I, I know you've done some work with companies that sort of cater to the, the construction space. Tell me some specifics about what uh, sort of things you worked on there. It's interesting. So the, the company that's most specifically, exclusively really to the construction space that I've worked with is a software company called Procore. And Procore has specifically focused on the challenges that the on-site project manager has with respect to managing a cohort of subcontractors, all the way from the bidding process, then getting, getting the various people on site, getting the right equipment on site, making sure the schedules all interface with each other. It's a complicated problem. Normally, it's solved inside some trailer somewhere with a large number of blueprints. Oh, and by the way, then when they update the blueprints, how do you get the blueprints back out? And I mean, I mean there's just all kinds of problems. And, and it's the sort of problem where, I mean, construction was not an early adopter of computers. But now, it's like everybody has mobile. And your subs all have a mobile phone. And everybody has Wi-Fi. And so you're, or at least, you know, cellular plus Wi-Fi. So you're going, well, wait a minute, we, we can take advantage of this. And so the, they're a company that's coming to do that. The other company, which have a kind of a longer term relationship with is Autodesk. So Autodesk didn't start in construction. They started more with the architects and the engineers and, and they, they were kind of around the plan, right? But of course, the plan has to get built. And of course, as built, and as planned, are never quite the same. So this need to create this sort of feedback loop becomes increasingly important. And as the co- project is more complex, it becomes mission critical to get it correctly. So those are two companies who've said, I mean, Procore said, well, this is our life. I think Autodesk said, this is our next act. And it's a very interesting, it's classic in, in, in my world, which is software. 
the point product vendor who specializes only in the event, and then the more general platform vendor who says, I'm going to add this capability. And each has a, a kind of a, a different kind of an appeal. So it, and you learn a ton about an industry when you're in software, because whenever a software company goes into that industry, you learn all about the problems and what they're trying to solve for. But that's where they're going. So the Procore folks, are, both are being successful. The Autodesk people are trying to go from the main office to the site. I think the Procore people are starting at the site and maybe working their way back into the main office. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one of the things I noticed in, in one of your recent books, Zone to Win, is how organizations manage innovations. They have their day-to-day -day execution. I think you called it the productivity zone and the performance zone. But how does sort of a more established organization manage innovation? It's really important because the core business, as you get into the core business, particularly in your second decade, maybe, or even your third decade or more, the whole world now knows what you do for a living. Everybody inside your company knows what you do for a living. Everybody outside your company knows what you do for a living. You have a standard operating procedure. You've scaled up. You, have, you, you, may, you may be global. You may be operating in many, many countries. So there's an enormous amount of complexity. And, and so you want to have a kind of a standard inertial momentum around repeatability year after year after year, which is great until you need to catch the next wave. And now all of a sudden, all that inertial momentum is now saying, no, 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 we got to stay on the current course. And we're going, well, yeah, but there's a hairpin curve coming up here. We have to turn. So, 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 so we broke that problem up into two parts. The first part was, how would you get familiar enough with the technology to be able to, to make a bet on it? We called that the incubation zone. And I'll come back to that in a second. And the second one was, well, how would you actually get the entire company to turn? We call that the transformation zone. But for managing innovation, the incubation zone is the place you start. So you look at these, and I, by the way, tech, I've been working with tech companies for 40 years. I listed at the front of the book 56 iconic tech companies that couldn't do, that tried this over and over again, never caught the next wave and, and, and died. So these were really, really good companies. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so we obviously aren't doing, we, we need a new playbook. So part of the playbook that they were making a mistake with was what we call the incubation zone. And what was happening there was that everybody was willing to siphon off a little bit of money to spend on next generation research and development, maybe acquire some companies and experiment with things, but they weren't holding them accountable and they weren't managing them. In fact, they thought that to manage them would actually destroy them. So what they, and by the way, if they'd taken their existing management procedures for the core business, it does destroy them. So they were right. But the problem is you don't want to leave them unmanaged. What you want to do is manage incubation the way the venture capitalist community manages incubation. So venture capitalists are incredibly strict about holding entrepreneurs accountable, but they hold them accountable to the right things. They don't hold them accountable to EBITDA, or they don't hold them accountable to, to a bunch of ratios and, 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 and forecasting goals that the, you would hold the core business to the performance zone guys too. It's much more like, did you get your first visionary customer? Are you able to cross the chasm? What is your first use case? Have you gotten traction with that? Is ecosystem referencing starting to happen? I mean, it's a bunch of things like that. So what we did is we said, look, you want to set up, if you're going to be a large company and you, and you see this next wave of technology coming into your world and you want to get ready for it properly, you need to set up an incubation zone with a governance model 
where you put money into the zone, but then you don't give the money to the entrepreneur. You sort of hand it out milestone by milestone. And there's got to be kind of a board that, that manages it, just like a venture capitalist group would. And the funding is not annual. The funding happens by milestone. So most companies only fund once a year. They fund during the annual process. They bring all these little entrepreneurial companies to the, to the annual planning event. They should never be there. They're, they're making requests for tiny amounts of money, but it's enough money that the other people want it too. So then they have to compete with the core business to get funded. You don't want them to do that. So, I mean, there's just a lot of reasons why you wouldn't do that. So there's a, there's a chapter about, well, how would you do it correctly? And that, that's how you do it correctly. And that's the incubation zone. Yeah, I noticed that you're talking about borrowing resources once that incubation period is over from the performance zone. How does that work? That, I found that fascinating. Well, it's really, it's really interesting. And it depends, it depends. At the end of the incubation effort, you say, do we want to bet on this at all? Because sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is, well, we don't want to release, we don't want to create a public offering based on this, but we should use it internally to make ourselves more effective. Okay, that's that. We would call that going, putting it in our productivity zone. A lot of times you'll say, we can actually make this part of our core business if we just reshape it to be less disruptive. So we take off a couple of the rough edges. It's, we're not quite, it's not quite as spectacular as the disruptive innovation, but it's much easier to absorb. And our current sales force and our current customers and our current partners can take this as their next generation of offerings. So that, that's kind of, you might call that the transition zone. It literally goes from the incubation zone into the performance zone with a couple of years of, okay, we're going to have an overlay sales force. We'll have special people who can represent the new product. But the goal is to have our standard, it's part of our standard product line by the end of the, say, the second year of that. The third one, and the one that's really interesting is like, no, this actually cannibalizes our current business. This, this is like, oh my God, but, it, but it's the future. But yeah. it's the future. And so you think, oh, what are we going to do? Like, like Microsoft, the story we do with Microsoft with Azure. So Azure is, is cloud computing. Great way to go, Microsoft. <laughs> by the way, they were buying all this back office software that they're not going to buy anymore. And so now what you have to do is the company has to make a conscious decision to what we call it, go through a J curve. Actually, the, the, your performance is going to go down before it goes back up. It's, it's the opposite of COVID. COVID, we're trying to flatten the curve. In the J-curve, you're trying to bend the curve. <laughs> you're trying to get it going back up. But the point is, there's a, bad, there's a very bad part in the middle. And those 56 companies that went out of existence got into the middle of that J-curve, and it was just too painful, and it was too ugly. And so they'd stop. And they'd say, well, that, that, obviously, that was not the right product, or we should try something else. And so they try something else and get that in the middle of a J-curve and stop again. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, okay, guys, if you start a J-curve, you must get through it. So either don't start, which, by the way, is, is an option. But if you do start, the failure is not an option. And, I, I think, and that means that the CEO has got to hold the entire company to a performance standard that is, that is contrary to everything it's ever done in its history. So you can imagine what kind of leadership that takes. Yeah, that's, that's strong. Now, at what point, like whether you're a small company or a big company, do you say that you have a dud and then you have to, to bury the project? Like, how do you think through that? Because, you know, yeah. 
It's good. It's good. Okay. If you're starting with it, remember, we're in the incubation zone, the venture company, but venture funds have lots of duds, right? Yeah. So, so you, should be, you should be confident that if you're using the venture model, you'll get a bunch of duds out of the system earlier than you would normally would. Whereas in a large company, you tend to protect these projects and they tend to live this sort of half-life for years and years and years. Venture people say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And if you have a funding model, which says I only have a certain amount to spend, I'm not going to spend it on duds if I have something better to spend it on. So that, that's fine. But still, you say, okay, no, it looked promising. No, it, 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 this looked like one of the 24, 14 Democratic presidential candidates that did not get picked. But we thought maybe they would get picked. Okay. So, so that means we, we bet more money. So now the issue is, again, if we're saying, can we get this thing to scale? And if it's a dud in the transformation, could I have made it into a sort of like a transition into the performance? Or could I, could I pull back and maybe reshape it and do that? That's one alternative. Another alternative, I mean, killing the project, the later the thing is, the harder it is to actually kill it. So you, normally what you would do is say, no, I'll, maybe I'll put it into our productivity zone. We'll, we'll cannibalize the technology to support our core business. Maybe we'll make an extension on our core business. But if you start a transformation, as I said before, really, you just have to make it happen. And what, what does make it happen mean? Make it happen means you got this new business, the one that's based on the new technology, to at least 10% of your total business. And the reason why 10% is kind of important is at that point, the world says, oh, you're in another business. Oh, how is that ecosystem? What is that business worth? And, and how does that, and by the way, you don't have to get out of your old business to be in the new business. So maybe you're a bigger company now. And there's a time when, when you go from, from a time when people are totally skeptical about you and they think this entire thing's a stupid idea and you look <laughs> like an idiot to, oh yeah, oh sure. Of course, Apple should make music. Yeah, everybody, of course, Apple should be a phone company. What were we thinking? <laughs> Whereas when Dell tried to be a phone company, that was the dumbest idea ever. <laughs> when Nokia tried to be a music company, well, that's stupid. So you're basically saying you're kind of bringing it to a placeholder position so it's not killing the company, but basically you can evaluate further? Is that? And, well, I, and then I think there's just a moment where you have to, you have to bite the bullet. And, I mean, there is no risk-free way through this problem. Well, what you can do, if you, if you have the kind of company that just doesn't make big, bold moves, because a lot of it, it can take construction. These are a lot of family-owned companies. This is not, we're, not, we're not trying to be a tycoon here. We're just yeah. trying to be a good business. Then I think what you would say is, we're always going to find a way to move things into the performance zone. We're, we're not going to do a transformation. And what that means is, you're deferring, there will be a future state at some point where you will be on the wrong platform and you'll be too old and you'll have to be at that point. But that, that could be a decade away. And by the way, a lot of things can happen in a decade. <laughs> so buying time is not a bad idea. That makes sense. So, I mean, I could probably sit here and talk about this for a very long time, but um, you've given a lot of presentations and talked to a lot of companies. What's the craziest thing you've seen or encountered in a speech? Okay, in a speech? Oh my goodness. I, I don't, I tell you, the most fun thing I get yeah. is sometimes when I go to the, first of all, the, uh, most of the speaking I do, most speakers do are these large customer events or industry events. 
they are so machined. There is nothing unpredictable that ever happens. And if it does, it was a horrible accident. <laughs> Where does the fun stuff happen? Yeah. It happens in two places for me. Yeah. It happens either in classrooms where a professor has said, would you come in and talk to my students about this? Mm. Or it's one of these sort of user group, community groups, typically technology enthusiasts like your audience. And, but it's, you know, we're at a product management meetup or something like that. Now, not this year, it'll have to be virtual, but, but we actually used to be able to actually get in the same room. <laughs> in either case, what happens is you put out some really nice piece of PowerPoint and they go, that's great, but, and then they have this squirrely idea. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, okay, well, that was interesting. <laughs> and so uh, how does that work? I don't know. Let's see if we can figure it out. And, and so... And that, of course, that's really fun for me because that's like, it's like playing chess. I mean, you know, you're playing chess and you're playing one of these speed chess where there's all these different people that want to play with you. That's the fun part. That's cool. There must have been, you must have inspired a lot of different innovations out of those kind of informal uh, chats. Well, I mean, I didn't inspire them because they came with them. I, you know, what you hope to do is you give them some extra edge in getting that innovation all the way through to making an impact on the world. That's what they all want to do. I mean, people, yes, people would love to make a lot of money, but, but really what they want to do is make a difference. Yeah. I mean, what's the most common advice you, you give to people in those situations? It's almost always that it's, so, it's such an unnatural act to go from the early market where you're talking in a very expansive way. And frankly, your technology could have many possible futures in many possible applications. And then to say all of a sudden to have somebody say to you, you need to pick one use case in one niche market. And by the way, you need to focus on it for probably two years. <laughs> and they're going, what? <laughs> and, and the answer is, yeah, just, just. Yeah. And you don't, you're not, no one knows what, which one it is. <laughs> no, well, the good, there is, and the, the best, in fact, a lot of the time, one of the toughest problems is there'll be two or three or four use cases that are all plausible. Yeah. So you say, well, why can't I go after all four? It's just, well, why can't you light a, when you're trying to light a fire, do you put a match under four different logs? I mean, you, know, you hold the match someplace to start the fire. Yeah, I, I know. You, you keep trying to talk to people to see if they could, they could allow you to do that. But pretty much anyone that's done it, it has to do it. And I think even you talked in your big company examples, there's always a bandwidth problem. It doesn't matter how big the company is. That's right. And part of it is this issue of hedging your bet. Yeah. And there's a, there's a time when, when you have inertial momentum and you're in your core business, hedging is just part of the game. It's just how do you win the game. But when you're in this early fledgling world, hedging is not your friend. Because you, you, you don't have enough resources anyway. And when you try to federate them across multiple opportunities, you never get enough, enough impact. Yeah. No, it makes sense. So... You're a busy guy. You do, I think I read somewhere that you do like, was it 50 to 80 presentations a year? Is that correct? That's correct. Actually, it's been kind of fun. I think I may do more this year because I'm counting this as a presentation now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's great. I, I think you're getting more productivity, right? You're absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really funny. I don't get on airplanes. Uh, yeah. Now, maybe by the end of the year, I will, but I haven't been getting on airplanes. But we've been doing, I do a lot with Salesforce. We used to do dinners where I'd fly to different cities and we do these dinners. Well, now it's a dial flight of a different city. I just click out and a half hour later, I'm in a different city. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, I mean, I guess things have changed, but one of the things I like to ask guests is what are some habits that keep you productive or keep you successful? Because you've, you've had a very 
very long period of sort of putting out great content and success. How do you keep that going? What do, what's, what are your habits? So, yeah, I think I, so a couple of things. In my case, one of the things that I think is important about the work I've been doing is it's backward compatible. Mm. So Crossing the Chasm came out in 1990, and there have been seven books, but each book is backward compatible. So, so, it is, so you said, well, well so, so where did that come from? And I was trying to think, where did it come from? Well, what it comes from is, you, so you put out a book, you give a talks about it, people get interested in the frameworks. My books are all about frameworks. So how would you solve this emerging problem? You don't have enough data to do research, really. So you have to have a model or a framework, and then you get in there and mix it up and see what happens. Well, so people say, okay, well, we, we heard your speech, read the book, got the t-shirt, whatever. <laughs> Why don't you come in and, and help us install this play? Okay, let's go do that. So you do that and you get in the middle of things and you realize two things. One, your play isn't quite as good as you thought it was. <laughs> so it could definitely be improved. And two, there's other stuff that you're not addressing that's around the domain. And so for a while, what you do is you sort of, you sort of stick things onto the old play. You know, you kind of, you can, like, in the old days, we used to have these transparencies, and you just add transparencies to your, <laughs> until you got this huge thing. Well, eventually, you get to a point where you go, this is crazy. This really does need a separate treatment. And so you write your second book, and the third, and so that... But the key to all of them for me has been to staple myself to a really tough problem, to a problem that is obvious that my customer, my current clients, the people I'm interacting with, don't, they haven't landed it yet. So, so I'm intellectually curious about, well, could you even land it? And, and if so, how? And then I just won't let go of that problem. And yeah, so anyway, that's where, it, that's where it comes from. Staple yourself to a tough problem and don't let go. You have to innovate them because otherwise you'll die. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. And I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyways, if you were to do it all over again, would you do anything different? Well, you know, it's really funny because, you know, my first career was as an English professor. Ah. So you'd say, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a, a doctorate in medieval and Renaissance literature, and I taught English literature for, for four years before my wife and I moved back to California. But so you say, well, would you do that again? And the truth is, yeah, I would. A, because I love it. And by the way, I'm going to go back to it. At some point, I'm going to go back to doing that anyway. But B, in a very funny way, it taught me how important narratives are in engaging and enlisting human beings. Mm. And of course, obviously, that's what literature tries to do. That's what plays try to do. It's what movies try to do. It's also what marketing tries to do. Mm. It's also what managers and leaders try to do. Mm -hmm. And so... I think this notion, and, and by the way, venture capital is an exercise in entrepreneurs telling stories and venture capitalists trying to figure out if those stories could come true. They're sort of doing almost like literary criticism on entrepreneurial storytelling. Yeah. So, I, yeah, for me, actually, I would not, I, I'd stick with them. And then I also happen to was blessed with a wonderful wife. We've been married for over 50 years. We've got three kids, two grandchildren. Yeah, no, I'm all in. I don't want to read. I'd play the same hand. Perfect. <laughs> And now, is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? Well, let me see. I think it's important for your entrepreneurs to have some understanding of venture financing. And the only thing that maybe is start off with angel financing, typically, friends and family, but it, and then maybe some points it'll get more institutional. But I think the thing to understand about venture financing is 
when people give you money in a venture world, they're giving you money to change the state of your company from its current state where they, everybody agrees, well, I'm going to give you, a, let's suppose I'm going to give you a million dollars for half of your company. But well, if, if you did that, you'd say, well, that means our company's worth $2 million, right? Or maybe I'll, I'll give a quarter of the company. Let's, uh, it's worth $4 million. Okay, good. So you're going to have to raise more money in the future. The venture model says your company's got to be worth a lot more than $4 million when you raise the next time or else somebody's going to get diluted, right? Because, I mean, if you sell another quarter and it's still worth $4 million, well, whose quarter? Well, you're not going to sell my quarter. You're going to sell another one of your quarters, right? But if you can get, if at the next funding it's worth $10 million, and you, you say, well, I need another million dollars. Well, you don't have to give up a tenth of your company, right? So that's the whole idea behind venture company. You're going, to make your, you're going to use the money you get now to create something that's more valuable. Well, what we've learned about value is it's not linear. It's like, you, it's like you go from one state to another state based on having taken some major risk off the table or created some milestone. That, and it's always, this is why milestone-based funding is so important. You, you went to a milestone and everybody agrees a company who's passed that milestone is worth a lot more than one that hasn't. So you want to think about your funding as getting you to a milestone. You'd like to have an under common understanding with the people giving you the money and yourself what that milestone is and how we'll know when we're there because we're going to probably raise more money in the future. That dialogue is a really important dialogue. And, and so across the, there was a book called The Traction Gap, which came out in the last two years which is kind of crossing the chasm, but from the point of view of venture funding. Mm. And I think that it's very good at explaining how that works. Very cool. Well, I learned a lot. Thank you. Uh, well, good. Well, it's, <laughs> well, Tatch, it's been a pleasure. And keep stay safe. And is, is Vancouver also under shelter in place? Yeah, we're, we're asked to stay home. Yeah. It's, they're using different language, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, well, we're, we're, this is the Bay Area. We're, de- we're definitely, until May, now it's until May 3rd, we're... Stay at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely, I went to a school down in San Francisco, so I love the, the Bay Area. Yeah, it's a good place to be. But I tell you, if you were to look out on the streets of San Francisco right now, you'd go, yeah. where is everybody? <laughs> the answer is their home. <laughs> well, good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.